You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. The dream of being a totally passive investor is turning into somewhat of a nightmare for many people who have invested in commercial real estate due to higher interest rates, higher cap rates, higher insurance, and slowing rent growth. In fact, a $220 million real estate portfolio in Houston was just foreclosed on, leaving hundreds of investors with nothing. So how can passive investors be more careful moving forward? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today, Whitney Elkins-Hutton, is the Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com and a partner in over $800 million worth of real estate, including over 6,500 residential units, seven express car washes, and more than 2,200 self-storage units across 11 states. And she has experience flipping over $5 million in residential real estate. And she's here with us on The Real Wealth Show. So Whitney, it's so great to see you. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. So one of the things you've been talking a lot about is how to not lose money as a passive investor. And I think this is a really important topic right now. So you say you have eight deal breakers. Let's talk about that. What What's the first? Yeah. You know, you and I were talking before the show, it's not always about the money when it comes to passive investing, because when you get into passive investment, you're handing over operational control to the operator. So it's all about the who, not the what of the deal. And so when you're talking to these operators and you're vetting the operators, there's eight things you should suss out. But one of the first things is, do they have a successful business background? You know, ideally in real estate or somebody on the team actually has that real estate background. But even people that are getting into the space, maybe, you know, maybe a newer syndicator, they are, if they can bring in a strong business background and then bring somebody else on their team that has a strong real estate background, that can be a winning formula. Yeah. So let's really define what a passive investment is because there's all kinds of talk about passive, but there's so many different levels of it. I mean, even at Real Wealth, we we have we used to call what we do passive in terms of helping investors acquire, you know, acquire rental properties and build their own portfolio. But then after a while, we're like, you know what, this is really not a hundred percent passive when you when you're the one managing your portfolio. Even if you're even if you have a property manager, you're still the one managing who's getting the insurance, has it been updated, uh, who, who's getting the loan. Uh, who's checking in with the property management to make sure they're doing their job. So even if you're building your own portfolio and you're working through real wealth with teams that we've already vetted and who have property management in place and may oversee the renovation for you. So it's fairly passive. It's not totally passive. Uh, So how would you define passive income? Well, so I think there, I think there's the rub, right? We, you know, people get into real estate because they hear about passive income and that it's taxed differently. Really, uh, depreciation and um, other business write-offs allow us to shelter the income so it doesn't get taxed, and therefore we call it passive. Also, we can leverage our time, right? I can go buy a single-family rental and I can do a heavy lift one time, and then you know 
essentially theoretically earn mailbox money. But Kathy, just like you said, there's so many other, so many other things that I'm doing as a single family homeowner or even a small multifamily unit owner. And over time, as you're scaling your portfolio, maybe, maybe doing that for one or two properties isn't that big of a deal, but you start getting like where I was into 30, 40, 50 properties. You have another full-time job. It's anything but passive. Right. Um, so really what we're talking about is how can we shift being passive with our time? And that means learning to invest in other people's businesses where they are the expert. They're bringing the, the knowledge, the expertise in the particular business strategy, they're going out, finding the deal, completing due diligence, closing on the deal, securing lending. If additional capital needs to be raised, they're pulling that together. And that's just leading up to closing the deal. But once the deal closes, they're managing the day-to-day operations of the deal. And your role as a passive investor, in this case, the technical term is limited partner, is to be a silent partner in the deal. You're bringing capital. They are providing all the boots on the ground work and managing the asset in a fiduciary capacity for their, their all the investors in the deal. Um, even to the point of they're making decisions probably on whether the asset is refinanced to pull capital out or even at what point in time the asset is going to be sold. And so as a limited partner, you want to make sure when you're vetting these operators that you know them, you love them, you trust them. But more importantly, you can really know, love, and trust somebody. But if you want to make sure that their goals for their business line up for your goals for your portfolio. You also want to make sure you, their deals are in that same risk tolerance window as what you're looking for. And also the timeline horizon. I see it so often where investors are starry-eyed by a deal, and then they don't realize they're in on the deal for 10, 15 years. Um, you know, or they get the capital back. Maybe they're in on a deal for two years, and they get their capital back, and they go, what do I do next? Right? So you want to make sure that all these things align from the very beginning. Yeah, that's a great definition. So let's, let's go through the levels of passive income. Obviously, like you said, if you buy a rental property and it's maybe a newer property or it's been already renovated, kind of turnkey style, and you've got great management in place, it's fairly, it's fairly passive. Um, I say that because it's really my husband who manages them. So for me, it's very yeah, passive. <laughs> Thank you, Rich, by the way. Uh, so, but, um, you know, what he has to do is, and I, I will say he's made it fairly passive as well because he's hired a bookkeeper to manage the finances, make sure that bills are being paid and that the bank hasn't forgotten to pay the escrow, you know, and so you, your insurance is dropped because they forgot to pay it or they didn't bill. So, you know, you didn't pay. He, we, he's, he's kind of managed to um, create it like a business and have, you know, experts do the work. Uh, for him. But like you said, most people aren't doing that. Let's go through the levels of passivity for the operator. Because obviously, if you're investing in a syndication, you're pretty passive. You're a limited partner. You may or may not have voting rights. You may not have any rights at all, except here's my money. Uh, follow the business plan, hopefully, and give me my money back with, with whatever profit was anticipated. Uh, but for the operator, which kinds of investments are more passive and more active? 
Well, I think it's even down to the business structure. And if I can touch on that for a second, and I think this is really important when, um, from an LP perspective, the limited partners perspective to understand that just because somebody says they're a general partner, you need to really uncover what does that mean? Is that general partner the day-to-day operator of the business? Are they boots on the ground, you know, finding the deal, managing the deal, disposing the deal? Are they a co-sponsor in the deal? Are they, is their function primarily to bring capital to the deal and maybe do a little bit of asset management? That means that general partners, they're going to be even more passive um, in the deal. But it does put the limited partner one step removed from the day-to-day operator, right? And then you have um, you know, people that are just broker-dealers purely bringing capital to the deal. And then you have people that are um, in the fund of fund models. So they're a general partner, you know, maybe not even a general partner. They're just a, a, a partner that's coming in. They're, an, uh, they're aggregating capital so they can take that capital to an operator and kind of slide it into a higher tier return, you know, getting achieve higher returns or leverage returns for their investor base. And so, I mean, none of the, there's no right or wrong way. The limited partner just needs to understand when they are interviewing people to work with for to to be on their team as an operator to bring them passive investments, they need to know, are they, you know, betting on the actual horse that's running the deal or are they like further removed from the deal, um, you know, in, in a position where they pro- that, that person may not actually have as much influence on the deal should, so if something should go sideways or south. And so that yeah. kind of leads into some of the other red flags. Um, that, you know, maybe we can work our way through that limited partners need to be aware of, especially in today's environment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just at the best ever conference and spoke to a woman who did what you just said, a fund to fund model, meaning she had a lot of family and friends who were looking for investments. She put together a fund and that fund invested in another syndication as a limited partner. And she had very little, very, you know, very little say on how things go and it's not going well. So a uh, tough thing man, to, to raise money with family and friends and not have control. I, I know it. I've done some deals like that too, where it was a fund to fund model. And when, you know, COVID hit, obviously that's been really hard on some of these deals, especially not so much for multifamily. <laughs> COVID was good for, for that, you know, that time period, not so much right now. Uh, but uh, construction, very, very difficult to pull off. And if you're a limited partner, whether you're a fund or an individual, you don't have control. Uh, or much say. So going from the asset class, let's say, obviously the most, most, most passive, I would say would be a uh, triple net lease type thing, uh, a, a warehouse or office space or, or something where it's triple net lease and the tenant is kind of doing everything. To me, that's probably the most passive. Uh, what what would you say? Uh, definitely triple net lease. Um, I you know, again, you're passing through, you know, the taxes, the insurance, and probably the, the maintenance and repairs also to the tenant. So that, that kind of removes a lot of the operator's uh, day-to-day uh, involvement in the asset. They're still having to, you know, asset manage that particular asset. Um, you know, past that, you do, I, you know, multifamily. I, I was, I'd actually put self-storage probably next. Because, you know, you're, you're generally buying four metal walls and a concrete floor. Uh, now, you might have climate-controlled, um, you know, units that, you know, the air conditioner might need to be repaired, you know. Um, but you're, de- 
you know, not dealing with, you know, a lot of tenant questions. You're not dealing with toilets or termites, you know, all the terrible teas that we talk about when it, you know, when we're talking about residential investing. And then, um, you know, as far as passivity, you know, you know, I would go into multifamily after that or something in the residential model, multifamily, residential is, well, not actually we'll table residential assisted living, but multifamily mobile home parks. Um, you know, you're, you're, Hopefully, as an operator, you know, repairing units, um, putting them up for rent for one time a year, and then just managing the tenant, in, you know, for the lease term. And then now you're getting into the more active operational deals, which are more like businesses. Like you said at the beginning of the episode, you know, um, you need to understand when you're actually no longer investing in commercial real estate, more in a business that has real estate attached to it. So hotels. Um, anything hospitality, I would say, because you're more hands-on with the with the with the consumer. Uh, then you've got your businesses like gas stations, car washes, lube change places. You know, so uh, you know again, there's a whole sliding scale. And the reason why that's important for the limited partner to understand is because the more active you get into those business models. There, there are more moving parts and there are potentially more issues for things to go wrong. So it just leads back to that red flag number one, that that person has to have an immense amount of business sense about them and a business track record um, to be able to tackle such a model. And if they don't, that's, that again, if somebody's trying to go into a super active model and they have no business background... I would, I would be scratching my head a little bit. As a I definitely walk from that, especially if they don't have a track record in that thing. Exactly. Um, you know, I've, I've heard really cool businesses that cash flow very high, right? Like, like you said, car washes or, um, laundromats or, you know, some of these things that, um, uh, maybe, maybe laundromats are more passive. I, I don't know, but either way, it's a, a business versus you're, you're kind of investing in rental property. Um, I would even argue that multifamily is, it should be run like a business storage. Absolutely too. be, well, every real estate deal should be run like a business because it goes from the numbers. Like you said earlier, looking at a spreadsheet and saying, wow, these really numbers work. These numbers work. This is great to, uh, you know, the bigger picture, managing people to make those numbers happen. You know, as we, as you probably know, there was a big foreclosure of a syndicator in Houston and the word on the street is they, you know, first of all, scaled too quickly. It's a lot of units in a very short amount of time with not enough experience. That should have been the investor's first red flag is, wow, they've scaled really quickly and they don't have a lot of experience, business experience, managing that many people. So, it's my understanding that they just kind of hired a property manager and the property manager was supposed to take care of it. But you know, you got to have somebody on your team managing the property manager, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Just because you have property management, you, you can't wipe your hands clean and just sit back and wait for the statement every month. You need to be heavily involved. Yeah. I think of it this way. You know, even as the operator, you know, even if you're just, you know, getting your first 10 or 20 unit building, your property manager isn't, they're taking some operational load off of you, but you are the captain of the ship and you need to know exactly what, what you want, why you want it and be able to direct that ship to where you want to go. Um, so yeah, you, you can't just, you know, 
you know, look at a statement once a month and go, yep, that's good. I got my check in my bank account, you know, especially not as an operator. You need to be very hands-on and, you know, fiduci- you know, be a fiduciary for your limited partner's money. I mean, I, I just happen to personally know some people who are on-site managers of apartments and the things that they sometimes get away with, these are personal friends, not, not in the, or just acquaintances, uh, n- not in my real estate world. They're, they get basically free room and board for, for being the on-site manager. And in LA, it's expensive to live. So that's a great job to have. And some of the things that I hear where, uh, maybe they, not these particular people, but they've heard that sometimes the on-site manager will put a, put one of the units on short-term rental list and, and rent it out and pocket that money, um, or give friends and family a better deal. Uh, you know, there's just things that happen. You've got to manage your managers. It's like, like any, again, like any business, you've got to manage your managers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we only got to one of your deal breakers. So what's the second one? Uh, you know, being a part-time operator. So um, I, I understand people have to, you know, get started in their, you know, syndication business somehow, some way. Not everybody is in a burn their boat position. But, you know, for somebody who's a higher net worth individual, um, you know, maybe further along in your portfolio build, there, you have choices out there. You know, you know, you you either might be in a position where you want to take some bets on some smaller operators, but moreover, just think about when you're investing with somebody who's part time, or even like kind of number two or number point number three, somebody who that just has one managing partner and not two, at least two managing partners, ideally unrelated. That you know, now you're you know, you're, you're creating single points of failure. One, you've got somebody who's distracted, potentially splitting their time across, you know, not only serving themselves in their own job, but trying to build a business. But two, you know, um, if they're, if they're the only person and, you know, heaven forbid they got hit by a bus, (laughs) you know, they're a single point of failure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and number three, so now we're getting kind of into the numbers. So I like looking for deals um, that have a preferred return. So if a deal doesn't have a preferred return or if there's a preferred return with the GP catch up in the middle, um, you know, that's a red flag for me. Now, it may not mean that I walk away. Um, if it doesn't have a preferred return, generally I do walk away. But, you know, mm-hmm. the GP catch up generally kind of unaligns the deal with the limited partner, the general partner and the limited partner, you know, that's a red flag for me that we might not be aligned for incentivizing performance on the deal. So definitely make sure that, you know, really the only way you're going to figure that out is by either directly asking the operator, but more specifically reading that private placement memorandum Mm -hmm. (laughs) that everybody, I I mean, I, I know many investors, uh, I'll put out a private placement memorandum via DocuSign and five minutes later I have it back. And I'm like, there is no way you read all 120 pages (laughs) where that information is buried. Yeah. Read your PPM. If you don't have time, if you're a accredited investor and you're busy, busy, have your attorney read it and summarize it for you. Uh, you know, that's, that's the least you can do. Accredited investor means that you know what you're signing, you know, that you are savvy enough and you really have very little recourse as a re- accredited investor because the whole deal is like, you're accredited. You should know you have money. You can afford an attorney. You can afford a CPA to look at the documents and tell you if they work for you. 
So please, 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 I, I can't, I don't enjoy reading PPMs and I don't understand everything in there because I'm not an attorney. I have attorneys do that for me. So you should too, if you're accredited and you're putting in lots of money. I mean, I, I've seen people put two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in deals and not have their attorney review it. <laughs> you, you've got to. Um, all right. So next one. So, uh, modeling a refinance into the pro forma. And so this was, you know, something, uh, you know, that I, when you're dealing with value add B class assets, you know, which run up before COVID extremely hot investment class still is in the multifamily space. However, if the modeling on the pro forma has, is predicated on a refinance having to happen, especially in today's environment with our interest rates going up, um, uh, the rate caps being so incredibly expensive, um, you know, that's setting up the potential deal, the deal for potential disaster. Now, one way you can get around that is getting the actual underwriting from the operator. Yes, you can request that. Um, if they don't give you the underwriting or at least an abridged form of underwriting, that to me is also a red flag. And then back out that line for the refinance and see if the numbers still work. Okay. So, because that way, if the refinance never happened and the deal still actually makes a, a decent return, you might still be in business. Again, it's, it's not a complete deal breaker, but definitely a red flag. You want to make sure that the deal can exist without having that refinance in there. Let's just say that you are a busy doctor, you know, you're working a lot um, or, a, you know, whatever, but tech person in Silicon Valley working 80 hours a week and you just don't have time to even review this stuff. Um, you know, this is why people have financial planners. Is there, do you, is there anyone, you know, anything like that that you would recommend where you have somebody review this stuff for you? You know, I, you know, I personally haven't done this, but I know people that have um, hired broker dealers that are, you know, really close to the private placement industry or, you know, and that have deal within private placements to help them out. Um, also, there's a website called Bullpen you know, where there's some under, you know, that's a, 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 you know, a lot of commercial underwriters there. You might be able to source somebody off of there, especially if you're really actively investing, um, you know, to, to take a look at the numbers there for you. You know, again, it's not inexpensive, but this is, again, part of your due diligence as uh, uh, especially if you're an accredited investor, you know, you know, paying somebody two, three hundred dollars for the, an hour of their time to over review the the, the pro forma is money well spent. You know, there's also investment groups out there too, like left field investors, crowd DD, you know, there might be somebody else that's also investing in the deal that um, has a little bit more time that can assist you with that too. Oh, that's great. Love that. Okay. Well, we have time for one more, which, which of the points is the one you want to end with? Well, so the, the, there's a couple, you know, here that, you know, uh, di distributions are a return of capital, not a return on capital, no co-investment from the operator. That's another red flag for me. But the biggest one right now is the loan is an adjustable rate loan with no rate cap on it. Guys, where we are right now in the lending environment, we, you know, uh, it, it still may not make sense to put a fixed rate uh, loan on a particular deal. Uh, you know, there's there's pros and cons to to using fixed rate loans for multifamily deals, self storage deals. I get that, but and just make sure that whatever loan that you're going into for that particular deal 
has a interest rate cap on that, that that risk has been outsourced and that there's extensions in place for that loan for at least the term of the hold, if not longer. Couldn't agree more. I feel like people, if they don't have the rate caps now, it's kind of too late. <laughs> You're kind of already, um, you know, head underwater trying to trying, trying to make the property work if you didn't have a rate cap. And I know there's a lot of people in that situation. Again, for those kind of new to that term, that's a cap on the interest rate that an adjusted adjustable rate can can go to, and that there's an insurance, you know that you don't pay more than that. So I, that was a very choppy way of describing that, but it's a cap on, on the adjustable rate that should, you know, should have been in place when rates were low. And if it wasn't, well, it's just kind of too late at this point. I almost wouldn't buy one because I don't expect rates to continue to climb, but who knows, right? Who knows? It might be worth it still to get it. Um, you probably have thoughts on that. Well, you know, rate caps are really expensive. It all depends on your business plan and what the risk that you're willing to take on and, you know, as an operator, but just from a limited partners, you know, perspective, if you're going into a deal and you have to know where you are, where you are in this interest rate cycle. And if rates are you feel that rates can continue to climb, what, how is the operator outsourcing that risk? Right. It can be there. Maybe they're self-insuring. Maybe they're raising extra capital to be able to take on, you know, that rate climbing, continuing to climb for another, you know, 12, 14, 18 months, right? Um, maybe maybe they buy the insurance policy that caps that rate for them. But a lot of lenders are actually still requiring rate caps so um, for adjustable rate loans. Yeah, so they're probably requiring it anyway. Yeah, you yeah, got to do it. Really- yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you know, lenders are... are- holding the bag if the deal doesn't work out, which we, again, we saw with this Houston deal. I think the the bank lost 20 million on that. I, I think I go read the article. Uh, don't, don't ask me, but I, I do a believe money. a lot of money. I think it was, yeah. yeah, it was a lot of investor capital that evaporated overnight. Yeah. The investor capital eva- evaporated, but so did the banks. I think mm-hmm. that they, uh, they had to short sale that. Um, anyway, Whitney, thank you so much for being here. Now you guys have an upcoming event um, in Charlotte that I'll be attending. What, what's the date on that and where can people find out more? Yeah. So multifamily investor nation, uh, June 12th through 14th in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, um, yeah, we'll have, um, our whole team there from passive investing, um, you there speaking on stage. So we're super excited. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you there. All right. Thank you so much for sharing your, your insight and knowledge with us today on the real wealth show. Thank you, Kathy. And all this is why I am so excited about our single family rental fund. It is just so simple. It's still open to investors. You can find out more at growdevelopments.com. Basically, we are buying properties for under 200,000, but oftentimes under 100,000, putting in about 20 to $30,000 in repairs and increasing values substantially. And rents are continuing to increase because it's all in an area in North Texas where there's tremendous job growth. So I love that we are raising cash to buy these properties all cash. We can get a loan if we want to. We don't have to. But if we do, it will be fixed for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. These adjustable rate commercial loans and bridge loans and balloon notes, they can be very, very stressful, especially at times like now. So again, if you want to find out more about our single family rental fund, 
Check it out at growdevelopments.com. That's grow, G-R-O-W, developments.com. And also you may want to consider joining us in Dallas for a tour. And that can be found at realwealth.com under the learn tab where you'll find a drop down for tours. I'm Kathy Fedke. Thanks for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. I hope to see you in Dallas or somewhere else. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you soon. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.